suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. But today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We've made it. It's episode 200. <laughs> well done. We've made it. 200. Well done. Congratulations, Fist and Glove. Thank mm. you very much, Paul. We do appreciate your being here with us every yes. week. Always a pleasure. As always, um, we've got our little panel. We're going to talk about news and politics and religion and sex and the sorts of things that you're told not to talk about at a dinner party, but in <laughs> fact are the best things to talk about. <laughs> so join us for the next hour, hour and a half as we rattle through some topics and we will have a special guest coming on in a few minutes' time. So uh, I am, of course, Trevor the Iron Fist. Uh, with me, as always, for, the, for the, almost every single one of the past 200 episodes, <laughs> just the odd one here or there that you've that we've missed out on, Scott, the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. How are we all? Hopefully they're all good. And, of course, Paul, the 12th man, who's been with us for probably 150 or so. I, I don't, don't recall. We should look up when honest. he started. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway. he, started, he started off just being the 12th man that yeah. was brought yeah. in when we were off. That's right. We yeah. should rename the podcast, the, you know, the Iron Fist, the Velvet Glove, and the um, 12th man. Yeah, but it doesn't quite fit, does it, conceptually? <laughs> it's getting a bit wordy. It's a, yeah. it's a mixed metaphor, so mm. to speak. So the plan for this podcast, dear listeners, is we're going to recount uh, Scott's voting process today. <laughs> we might squeeze in a quick review of Anzac Day, and then we're going to speak with a guy, Justin Murray, about uh, being a humanist chaplain and his um, attempts to become a, a military chaplain mm. and a bunch of other things that um, will probably take us right through to the end. So we'll see how we go. We've got a couple of other topics if we need them, but... Scott, uh, voting open today, and you got in early. I did get in early, yeah. I went in there and I voted just because I just thought to myself, Jesus Christ, if I don't do it now. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to lose your nerve. (laughs) I did actually vote for the bastards, and the bastards being the ALP. (laughs) So, and my biggest regret of it was when Shorten said that he was going to subsidise the wages of the lowest paid um, childcare workers. Now, I agree childcare workers deserve a higher wage, mm-hmm. but you don't throw government money at that. If you do that, you end up opening yourselves up to a tax, which has already happened from three other unions that have now stepped forward and said, well, you've got to subsidise our workers too. Mm-hmm. That is a big, big problem that Shorten has opened up a huge can of worms for all of us. Anyway, like my better half said, he says, oh, he won't go through with that. Well, I hope he doesn't. (laughs) Mm. Why not just set a minimum wage? Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, look, they're only getting 22 bucks an hour. And then subsidise the industry like they subsidise private health. Well, I understand Mm. that. They do subsidise the industry already, but it's... You Which know. is kind of, isn't that what they will do? Won't, well, no, won't, they, the, the won't way, they more or less set a minimum wage and then subsidise the industry? No, they're paying the wages direct. No, they're paying the wages to the employer yeah. and saying you have to pass it on to Absolutely, the... Absolutely, which they will, yeah. So effectively, 
they are setting a minimum wage mm. and subsidising an industry. Yeah, mm. exactly. So anyway, and they subsidise industries all the time. Absolutely, we pick and choose: car industry, health yes, industry, exactly, uh, education. So yeah, why not so just make it for everyone? Why, well, why exactly, Paul? I mean, where does it where does it stop? Where do you actually say you know in, subsidies don't work? Yeah. Mm. You know, and that is the whole problem that I had with voting the way I did. Mm. And, and Shorten is ingenuous when he says he can silo that that one industry, isn't he? Yeah, because he's mm. already had the United Voice Union and that sort of stuff. He's come out and asked mm. for subsidies for their um, yeah. members who work for aged care. Ah, hypocrisy yeah, anyway. in politics. So anyway, so for the second I time in your life, second time in my life, I voted for the ALP. What was today. the first time? Uh, Latham, actually. Right. Yeah. There you go. You know why? What was the choice then? Latham, Latham versus Howard. Howard, yeah. Right, yeah. You oh, know well. why I voted for Latham? Because he actually wanted to split Telstra in two. He wanted to sell off the retail arm, keep everything else in government hands. Mm. Made perfect sense. In Rather than having all these extra mobile phone towers, you'd have mm. one tower providing cellular service across the whole mm. spectrum. There you go. Anyway. Sounds more efficient, doesn't it? And oh. it was, but it was voted down because it was Latham's idea. <laughs> Right, dear anyway. listener, this is our first podcast since Anzac Day and mm. um, we thought we'd do a quick Anzac Day review. So um, I did get a message from Daniel, one of our listeners, who said, Hello, Trevor, can I present my nominee for the most religious dawn service? Two hymns, one prayer and an epilogue that states that we are, quote, re-pledged to dedicate our lives to serving God our country and mankind. Oh, for God's mm. sake! And you like this bit, Twelfth Man? Uh, <laughs> the Anzac, the Anzac oration naturally started with an acknowledgement of country too, oh, just for fun. Right. So thank you. But do you know what I? I, I was reading about there was a uh, commemorative service at St Mary's Cathedral in Sydney the other day for the victims of the Sri Lankan atrocities. Right. And the person who was uh, relating the you know the details said there was a, a long procession of of priests in you know robes uh, carrying smoke smoke generators around the cathedral right. to the point where uh, people started coughing and spluttering. They had to open some doors to let some air into the joint. And and you know isn't that interesting that the Catholics also like to have a smoking ceremony? They do, yeah, incense. And when yeah. I was an altar boy, uh, one of the roles was to help light the incense yeah. that would be. Did you around. ever sneak some sort of illegal herbs into the incense burner? <laughs> no, no, I was very okay. pious at the time, okay. so <laughs> wouldn't have thought of it. Uh, my little ceremony at the Gap. Um, it's been hard for me to recollect exactly because their their um, their program had so many typos in it that were changed around. It was hard to remember everything. But uh, we had a prayer and a reading from the Bible. We had a hymn, Eternal Father. We had the Lord's Prayer, and we had a benediction, a final blessing. And actually, that made it a lot better than previous years. So there was no welcome to country. Many speakers emphasised that the service was not about glorifying war, but they had these resolutions that people, these people are, that the high school students read out, and the first of the four resolutions ended with, the resultant glory they gave to Australia and New Zealand at that time will never fade. <laughs> and then nearly every speaker after that said, 
it's not about the glory. No, so they, yeah. it really isn't. Scott, you've handed me your Anzac Day dawn service from Greenslopes Private Hospital. Yep. And I just quickly highlighted you had an opening prayer mm-hmm. from the hospital chaplain. Which wasn't done too badly. She mm-hmm. said that um, while she was giving a prayer from a Christian point of view, she wanted people from different religious backgrounds and those with no religion just to take her words and translate them into something meaningful for them. Finally. That's exactly that's all I've been asking for. That's the first time I've ever heard of that happen. Yeah. Mm. But you also had to sit through the Lord's, Lord's Prayer. Prayer. You had a hymn, Abide, Abide With, with Me. me. Yeah. Which I do quite like. <laughs> now you're making me feel dirty. <laughs> they had the anthems, of course, including the national anthem of New Zealand, yeah. God Defend New, New Zealand. Zealand. Oh, you dear. know, that was really good, actually, because they sang it in Maori first Beautiful. and, then, and yeah. then they had the um, next mm. one, which was in English. And you had a prayer of dedication and blessing at the end. Mm. So there we go. Yep. It's kind of a nice touch if you think about it because the, the Maori culture, um, let's keep in mind, is one of the most deeply Christian cultures in human history, right? Mm. So it's part of their tradition, isn't it, to be praising the Christian God, right? Well, it was probably in praising, times, in, it was probably yeah. praising some other God before then. So, mm. I, yeah, we can. I can the see sarcasm your, is coming through. Yeah, yeah exactly. I hope so. yeah. <laughs> right. Let's um, before we move on to any other topics. Let's see how we go on Skype. If we can get hold of Justin and. Come in, Justin. Mm. Sounds like a submarine. It does. It does. <laughs> Did you ever watch, um, you know, that super submarine drama that was uh, out of America when we were kids? Um, what was it called? Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea or something? It was a really, like 1960s, no. pro- maybe pre-Star Trek, and it was set in a... a a US sort of super nuclear submarine, and they used to make sounds like that. Yeah, don't remember. The last, the last submarine um, that I heard was um, Raju Singh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Do you remember? Yes, I remember. Yep. <laughs> he was a good submariner, old Raju. He, he was. In fact, uh, let's, let's, yeah, let, let's see if we can find, uh, um, because we had that story of the, Indian submariners yeah. who forgot to close the hatch. Yeah. And uh, we'd also had a story about, about the secret. About the secret. Yeah. And all you had to do was just believe and you yeah. could have whatever you like. And, mm. and the two of these things just combined into Raju Singh. Here he is. Goodness gracious me, it is always dive, dive, dive on this submarine. Oh, I want the sun on my skin and the wind in my hair. Why can't I have this? <laughs> What's this book? The secret? If I just wish, I can have. I, Raju Singh, wish for an outdoor life, for the sun, for the wind in my hair. Uh oh. <laughs> It does appear later, Raju. Fear not, he survives that. He does so, survive that. He is just... emigrating to Armadale, doesn't he? He does. We yeah. might get onto that. We might fill in with that by carrying <laughs> hold of Justin. 
Let me just... Uh, Working for the Australian Government uh, Bureau of... What was it? Agricultural Chemicals or something? No, he was just a... Um, he was a Barnaby Joyce's neighbour. His neighbour? Yeah. Oh. Oh, here we go. Here we go. Right. Sounds a bit less... Hello, Hello, Justin. Oh, dear listener. So Justin's on the line and Justin Murray is a humanist chaplain who currently works in that role part-time in a hospital and I've got a link to an article from The Guardian where Justin has begun the process of trying to become a military chaplain. So uh, welcome aboard our podcast, uh, Justin, and thanks for joining us and well, uh, Tell us the story of, of, of what you're doing as a chaplain and what you'd like to do as a chaplain in other roles. Oh, good. Thanks, Thanks, Trevor. So um, <clears throat> um, I first started being a humanist chaplain after doing mental health first aid and what's called clinical practice, CPE. Um, I did that via uh, uh, a hospital and through what they call spiritual support services. I have no idea what they mean by that. Um, <laughs> but it's basically a, a pastoral care slash chaplaincy kind so, of service. So was that a course that they required all of the religious chaplains to undertake? Yes. Right. And and was that like all hospitals had the same course or just this particular one had it? Or um, No, it's, uh, it varies according to each hospital. Um right. There's um, sort of there, there's a, a there's a need to have CPE if you want to do the work, but um, some have their own in-house version, <clears throat> which is all the active listening, mental health first aid kind of stuff without all the theology which the, the full CPE has. Yeah. So all hospitals are different, and there's no guarantee that. Um, my qualification, which is not like a full qualification, but a, a quasi-qualification which satisfies that particular place, mm-hmm. would be accepted at other locations. I do. I am the humanist chaplain at a university where I live as well, yep. um, uh, and they accepted my uh, uh, application on the basis of having been recognised at the other institution and, um, you know, uh, basically recognised prior learning or time an experience I'm serving sure. an experience. So what, so what the, motivated yeah. you to want to become a, a hospital chaplain in the first place? So um, in in my hometown, we've had, at that particular place, we've had humanist chaplains for 25 years. Uh, Charles Foley was there for 19. He's come, he came from the US and is certified as a, uh, a chaplain, humanist chaplain by the American Humanist Association. Uh, Lyndon Story, who's current head of the Council of Australian Humanist Societies, then served for a while and then I took over from Lyndon. So we've been there about 25 years in total. Oh, so you were is, kind of hanging out with these guys <clears throat> in other capacities and so you became aware of the role is, is that yeah. how, and you sort of then took over when they vacated, that sort of thing. Yeah, right. yeah. so uh, both uh, Lyndon and Charles I met through the local humanist society um, uh, Humanist Society of the ACT. Um, <clears throat> so uh, that's how I met them, and then they started talking about it. And I remembered that when I was a child, I had for a long time wanted to be a priest. Right. I was attracted to the kind of work that they did um, in terms of 
caring, listening, helping people through tough times and that sort of thing. So I thought, oh, I'm, I think I might want to give that a go. So I let Lyndon know and he said, oh, well, that he was thinking about stepping down from the role. So it was timing as far as he was concerned. He was needing to focus on uh, getting qualifications um, for to change his line of work. So well, I went to the training with him and started work and have gone from strength to strength. So, mm-hmm. Look, we'll get on to the military one in a little while, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious as to um, what experiences you've had there as a humanist chaplain in a hospital then. So I think I read somewhere in the article that at times you might be asked you might say to the patient, "What do you want to do? Do you want to do you want to pray?" And you might pray with people, even though you're not yourself a believer. Is, is that right? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the, I'm I'm kind of because I live close by, and I'm one of the more active and willing um, members of the chaplaincy service. Um, I get called upon often for emergency cases at our um, mental health our mental health unit. Um, and uh, sometimes those people can be quite religious. So my point of view is if I'm there to help them, so I'm not there to take anything away from them. And if helping <clears throat> helping them includes praying with them, I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. It means nothing to me, but it means a lot to them, and, that, and they're the person that matters in that conversation. So how do you identify yourself to them when when they call for the chaplain or you, or you, you walk in as the chaplain? Do mm. you – do you um, show that well. I assume you don't have a collar like a normal chaplain. <laughs> no, 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 I just, I just have a, you know, um, uh, you know, eighties and nineties band and metal t-shirts and a and a badge. Yep. And, and, and do, an ID. And do you, yeah, do you distinguish yourself from what they might be expecting in terms of a religious chaplain, or you just just um, counsel and don't even approach that issue? depends on the audience. So if I'm going to the mental health unit, they're probably not going to be in a very good state of mind and might, won't be able to pay attention for very long. So I just come in and say, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm from the you know, spiritual support services. I'm a chaplain with them. And I, I leave it up to them to make of it whatever they want. Right, yep. And often, sometimes they will assume that I am religious and that's okay. And if they ask to pray, I pray with them and I don't care. It doesn't worry me. The only thing... Um, uh, I do say, <laughs> which is technically not a lie, um, when if they ask me to pray with them, they want, sometimes they want me to lead the prayer, which seems obvious. You know, if I'm the chaplain, I'm the you know the one that they may think is closer to God, and I just say, I'm sorry, in my tradition we don't pray out loud. We certainly don't pray out loud. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good way of getting around it. And do yeah, you have people like, who say, well? Um, good to see you, Padre. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm an Anglican. What are you? Or do they? And, and does anyone yeah. ever get upset then and say, "Well, that's you're not what I want," and go away? Have you had been rejected? Yeah, of course, yeah. And then it's a, like um, you know, was, when I had my training, it was on. It was all about being very careful about how who I approached and how I approached them. So, um, I will if the person I'm approaching has identified, so I get to see their patient record, including their uh, wisdom tradition. So mm-hmm. if they're agnostic or atheist <clears throat> or sceptic or something else like that, I'll approach them and simply say, hi, my name is Justin, I'm his chaplain, but, and wink, I'm actually an atheist. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that seems to be approach works wonders. You right. know, um, I, early on, 
I would approach them and say, how many here is chaplain? Not a lot of people know who, what that is. They assume it's religious when it's not. Yeah. I had a lot of people tell me to please leave them alone. Now, so the data we have from the hospital in terms of um, how people identify when they are admitted are um, that about 71% say no religion. Wow. wow. Now, I'm a, I'm a social scientist by trade, and I reckon that's a methodology problem. I reckon when they ask them what religion we are, they're, you know, sick, mm. in crisis, not wanting to be pestered by a religious nut. I think they read the question as, do you want to be pestered by a religious nut? No, I have no religion. Thanks wow. very much. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. true. That, that could be so the case. I think, yeah, maybe. I don't know because I'm not in their heads and I would have to actually do the work to ask them. But that's my suspicion um, because that 71% does not map to our census data at all. Yeah. Unless, you know, when people come to the centres, I mean, I don't know, you know, not in their heads, but maybe they're thinking historically. Like I had someone tell me the other day tell me I'm an Anglican. But I don't believe in God, and I've been to church for thirty years. And I went, "You're an atheist, mate." In my head, I thought that. Yeah, yeah you're a cultural <laughs> Anglican. Um, yeah, and, yeah. And, and and then they told me they put that on the census. I'm like, "Oh, God, did you not see the whole campaign telling you not to do that?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so, so on, the other, the other part of that. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yep. sorry. No, I was just going to say the other part of that is um, I actually do sometimes deliberately approach people who. Uh, so there are services available to patients, um, staff, family, and friends. And I do sometimes approach people who I know are secular in attitude and say, look, you know, if you want someone to talk to, there's always me because I don't have an agenda. Mm. So I actually have a couple of nurses who are Muslim but are not out about it and don't have, you know, don't wear hijab or, or any outward symbols of their religion. But I have two that I regularly talk to because they don't they don't want to talk to an imam because they don't want a religious solution to to what they what's going on for them. They just want someone to listen to them. Right. right. So yeah. just wanted to add that in. Yeah. Yep. So obviously you provide a lot of comfort to people. For anybody um, contemplating, thinking, well, this is a great idea, I might do it myself, what mm. what sort of positive experiences do you find as a result of it? Like what is – it, is it, you know, I guess every job has its ups and downs and you might come home shattered, but there might be other times when it's really uplifting? I don't know. What's the experience like at a personal level like that for you as a – as an upper or a downer or a, you know, what, mm. what happens to you yourself? So I came out of a very messy divorce and I was very antisocial for a number of years. And um, I saw this as an opportunity to get out and about and, um, and meet people. So um, I, I suspect, because a lot of people have a lot of gratitude and they express that to me um, when we part. So often... Like the people go in and out of the hospital really quickly, so it's likely I'm only ever going to see this person once. It's very I have few repeat visitors except for staff. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's generally always positive for me because I get a lot of gratitude, and I think they think they're getting the best part of the deal. But for me, I feel I'm getting the best part of the deal because I get to talk to someone who's in crisis, not happy, might not have anyone to talk to, is maybe not comforted by thoughts of afterlives or whatnot. And, you know, I can see them go, I had a chat with a person, no names, in the mental health unit. When I approached him, 
he identified as an atheist. I told him, introduced myself, and he was physically agitated. He had an anxiety disorder, and he was physically shaking. I stayed with him for three hours, and by the end, he was talking calmly, and his um, his um, uh, agitation and his um, shaking had completely disappeared. Mm-hmm. So, like that's, I, I, could, I see wonderful things happening right before my eyes, um, and you know that's. I get a lot from that, you know. Mm, I, um, I get you a lot. Yeah, and like you know, there's opportunities to be okay. So, you know, for a while I was a bit of an uh, angry atheist asshole, and you know, was convinced that my <laughs> mission should be to go around and convince people just how wrong they were <laughs> and how deluded they were. But I, I've actually completely changed that 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 my attitude to that. My attitude now is um, I want to meet people where they are, and if they can find comfort, especially in really tough times, in their religion, well, bully for them. You know, it, it doesn't rob for me. It doesn't take anything from me or give anything to me, but it works for them, so that's good. Mm. So uh, is there a, an association of humanist chaplains in Australia? Have you got any idea of how many other uh, humanist chaplains there'd be running around? Yeah, absolutely. So there's... um. There are a number around um, in Melbourne. There's there's uh, at least one. We have two others in in Canberra. There's uh, a couple in Queensland, and I'm, I'm, these are only, only the ones that I know that are active and uh, in Australia. But um, yeah, I know England. Um, the NHS has at least one uh, humanist chaplain um, about two years ago. She joined, but the the actual national head of the national chaplaincy service for the NHS is also a humanist chaplain. So, and they're both women. Right. Interesting. Right. Yep. Yeah. So, with all of that experience, um, you heard about military chaplains, and yep. decided you'd like to be one of those as well. Absolutely. And- I thought, well, I, I'm doing this. You know, um, well, doing it as a volunteer, of course. Um, is not free. It actually takes time and money for mm. me to do that. But I don't have a problem with that because, as I said, the the, uh, the psychosocial benefits outweigh those. But I thought, well, if I can do this for a job, and you know, they're going to pay me. Uh, frankly, it's a very good salary. Mm-hmm. Um, um, well, why not? You know. Mm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, look, um, it's been a bit of a while. I don't have the exact dates to hand, but about two years ago. I made application <clears throat> to join as military chaplain, and I specified that I wasn't worried about which service I would go into, and uh, my application was rejected um, pretty much straight away um, because the, the, they wrote back to me and said that the um, they couldn't accept my application because there were no humanists in any of the military services. Now, I know that. Uh, <laughs> Means serving, no, no, no humanists serving in the military is what. No. what Which, no? could, you know, it could kind of make sense <laughs> in a way because humanism and, and warfare um, and being a warrior, I don't know how comfortably they'd sit together. But yeah. look, I, I know that's a lie because I, sure. I knew I had, and had been contacted by at least one humanist who was in a non combat role. And he said, well, that's a lie because I'm here and I'm a humanist. I'm in the army. So Right. I but thought, they boldly oh. declared there wasn't a single humanist in the Defence Force. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, my God. Yep. Yeah, what that's a interesting. And, and so they said, <laughs> so there wouldn't be any – okay. So 
So no one to serve, so no, we can't take your application. Right. That was their first line. Right. So I thought, okay, that's interesting. So I wrote back to them and said, okay, did a bit of searching, a bit of research, and said, okay, here is a list of 27 terms that, that non-believers may use to identify themselves atheist, agnostic, scientific, skeptic, skeptic, humanist, um, non-theist, pastafarian, satanist, yada, 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 anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I said, can you please let me know and guarantee that if there is not a single one of these people in the armed services because these are the kind of people that I serve as a humanist chaplain in my current two roles. Um, and that, they went very quiet for a while. And then they went back and said, oh, it's uh, the Minister for Defence personnel wrote back and said, well, pretty much, um, yes, actually there are non-religious people in the Defence Force and there are humanists. In fact, it's 53% of mm. the armed services identify as not having a religion. Uh, but we don't need you anyway because their needs can be served by the current religious chaplains. Right. So, again, we reject your application. Right. Yep. yep. Um, so at this point I thought... And this is an intriguing question, not only in terms of of human rights, but in terms of the Constitution. Uh, I want to go forward with this uh, and and just see what happens. So um, I wrote to the Australian Human Rights Commission and gave them all the information I had and said I would like to make a complaint. This looks like religious discrimination to me. Mm. So they they have accepted my complaint, and I'm currently in a mediation process with the Department of Defence to see what we can work out in terms of an outcome. So I can't discuss any of that. That's all legal in confidence, but I can let you know that that is happening. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, what denominations are currently represented by chaplains in the Defence Force? Yeah, okay. That's the important part here, isn't it? So currently there's only seven denominations. So it includes Catholic, Jewish, Anglican, Presbyterian, Baptist, and a few more. I don't have them off the top of my head and I don't want to make it up. That's not (laughs) not a bad way I prefer the truth. Presumably a chaplain is appointed in a a district or an area and and Mm. is expected to serve and counsel all denominations within that area, I, wouldn't that be the normal case or, or not? How does it? That, that's what defence would say, yes. That's what they, the letter and from the Minister for Defence Personnel said, that, yes, um, they cater to all. But, like, you know, maybe I was more pious when I was religious because I grew up Catholic, but there would be no way that I would go to an Anglican um, as a Catholic to do the things that I expect a, a Catholic priest to do, the, the, the G-rated things that they do, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to get that right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, I mean, you said Jewish, didn't you, in the, in the, in the representation there, I think? Six Was, types of Christian and, yeah. and all, Jew, all Jewish, yeah. Yeah, I mean. That's correct. So it's not like the, the Jewish or the Muslim um, chaplain is is just going to talk to the Jewish and Muslim um, d- defence force personnel of that faith, 
presume. Mm. So sort of the, the initial argument, well, there's nobody of your denomination for you to serve anyway, really doesn't make sense because these other groups are potentially preaching or, or not preaching but uh, what's the verb for chaplaincy? Like when you're chaplaining <laughs> or I don't know. But when you're, <laughs> doing when you're pastoral care. Doing pastoral <laughs> care. Yeah. Those guys would be, mm-hmm. would be doing it for, for 99% of the time to people who aren't of their particular faith. You, you'd only be, even, yeah. if there was no, if, even if there was not a single humanist in the Defence Force, it's still not a good argument. But um, yeah, so, but you see, you're a smart person and you've thought this through for at least five yeah. minutes. <laughs> Defence about running both arguments yeah. and they don't see that they contradict each other. Do you know if they've hired any since you started your application? Um, interestingly enough, I've had quite a few people who are chaplains reach out to me and say, I'm currently serving. I even had an offer for one Anglican chaplain that, you know, I could pretend to be Anglican and we'll get me in and then I could just switch sides. I'm right. like, mm, that's not the point. <laughs> right. The point is the process is wrong. And I probably should talk about the process for a sec, just, just so your listeners yeah, can because get to know how, how, when, how ridiculous this is. When we were setting this up, uh, this interview, you briefly mentioned a, a Catch-22 situation that was intriguing. Absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead. Yes. So in order to serve, so in order to put in an application for that to be considered. There's a separate uh, and supposedly independent re- re- um, advisory board. So they advise on military chaplaincy. And the same seven denominations all have a rep on that board. When I ap- make application, I have to give evidence from my wisdom tradition that, yes, I am actually ordained and, yes, I have the backing of that organisation, which I am not ordained in that way, but I am approved by the Canberra Humanist Board. So I've met their criterion for chaplaincy and they're my uh, religious body, so to speak. Yes. Um, so, but because there's no humanist on the advisory board, they can't consider my application. So right. the problem is, in order to get onto the advisory board, you already have to be a serving military chaplain. Yep. So it's and you, you can't know, be a I, serving I mean, military chaplain unless you're on the advisory board, and so you've got exactly, someone on the advisory exactly. board. Yeah, yeah. So it's um it's sort of catch twenty two all the way down. Um, now I, I wouldn't be paranoid, but I would guess that that was being set up on purpose to keep out some faiths that, for whatever reason, they don't want in the service. I do. I say that on the basis of a little bit of evidence, which is that there was a serving imam. And there is no longer a serving imam. Uh, so obviously, the Muslim representation on the board has been removed. I know that, and um, and he is no longer with he's no longer with their service. So, uh, right. you know, has I'd he been radicalised? Do you right. think is that why he was removed? Mm-hmm. He, or he may have been. Yeah, they may have suspected that. I'm not sure. I don't know anything about. I know that one existed. That's the limit of my knowledge. Which means, if they followed the process quickly, there. Correctly, there would have had to be an imam on the board. Yeah, and but these are and these are just internal policy decisions within the defence force. It's not like it's an act of parliament um, where you can no. look up legislation and and read it carefully. Like these sorts yeah. of rules that you're talking about here are just internal things that are very hard to find out. And, and do you actually mm. see a written? policy at all or you're just told these things um, yeah i'm simply told these things so mm. part of the process is i've been trying to do 
my my own version of discovery, like in the legal sense, and that I'm trying. I'm I have been requesting uh, since the beginning that I am shown uh, basic documentation, like where are this, where is this in policy? Give me your position descriptions. Um, mm. Like I would like all that information in order to be able to review it. Uh, but I haven't seen any of it, so I at as yet. Yeah. Well. Good luck with that process. That's going to be long mm. and drawn out, no doubt. And I believe, according to this article, Luke Beck is helping you out in some regard with a bit of advice. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So good yeah, on you, Luke. Been yeah, Luke's been amazing. And um, he, I, I've never met him in person, but he's um, he's always responsive to whenever I send him things or ask some questions. And we've um, workshopped together this approach and um, our my correspondence. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a long process, but, um, I, I personally think it's an important one. Um, if I were to speak hypothetically, you know, there's, there's kind of a number of possible outcomes here. Um, it is either unconstitutional in which case it'll probably have to go, or it might be that, you know, they find that it is, it isn't constitutional, um, and therefore it can stay. But I don't think it's, there's a win in defence for it either way, you know. Yeah, because um, the Constitution says that there shall be no uh, uh, religious test for a an office of, of government. It's along those lines. Yeah. Yep. yeah. Yeah. And so none of this will be resolved by the human rights thing. This is, you know, talking high court and right. and onwards and upwards from there. So, like, um, you know, and possibly because um, I live in Canberra, it might be talking to our human rights commission and our local courts. So this is it's going to be a long process. But, you know, I uh, the only possible out that I can see for defence is that um, it's found to be constitutional, but they are forced to put in a secular equivalent. Mm. That's the only win that I can see that might be possible. But I mean, who knows? Um, and these are all hypotheticals. I, you know, I don't know that any of these will actually come to fruition or how it will come to fruition. So, mm. well, good luck with that uh, one. I've, I've, there's another um, chaplaincy role I've got for you as well, um, Justin. Oh yeah. Yeah. Are you aware that um, I, I saw it with the Commonwealth Games that were held up here in Queensland recently. They had oh, okay. they had chaplains uh, employed at the Commonwealth Games. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, usually, um, state emergency services um, have chaplains as well. Hmm. Um, to um, to which I temp- I, I did apply to become one for our local um, emergency services, but. Um, uh, in the end, I didn't apply because I saw they have a very similar religious test um, and didn't have time. But next time one of those comes up, I think I'll be pursuing that as well on the same grounds. So, mm. you know, it, it just seems ridiculous to me that the kind of, you know, support, love and compassion that um, they want to allow people of religion to have by having chaplains should be denied to everyone just because you don't have, you know, a belief in a a god or goddess, that just seems to be a ridiculous position to me. Yeah, well, the school chaplaincy program is being challenged, so maybe if that gets resolved, then they'll just fall into line and realise that the writing's on the wall for for the military as well, maybe. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, defence is, um, speaking with local knowledge, they're um, quite a conservative, um, not an innovative at all kind of, uh, organization. I think if they they do um, evolve, it'll be 
dragged kicking and screaming. Right. Yeah. Well, well you're in for job. the long haul by the sounds of it, and you've got pretty good ammunition, and you've got a pretty rock-solid sort of case, so good luck. Hey, so yeah. you're also, just moving on from chaplaincy, so you've obviously been um, knocking around with sort of humanists and atheists and all sorts of other groups for, for quite a while now, Justin. So mm. I thought we'd just have a bit of a run through the different secular rationalist groups and just who you've been a part of and um, mm. and just let's talk about them. So you're currently a member of the Atheist Foundation of Australia? Yeah. I've been a long-term member, yeah. Right. Um, and I've been involved in their forums and I know uh, many of the long-term members there as well. So yeah. um, I will just say before I move on further mm-hmm. that, that there is an, an, a very annoying thing about military chaplaincy is that I've been in contact with a number of them, of, of currently serving chaplains, and I think some of them have reached out with concern that this might end up with them losing their jobs. Mm. One interesting thing I've learned from a number of them is that all of them are forced to pay money from their federally funded wage to their church. There's not one that hasn't said that, and it's ranged from between 10% and 100% where the person who give, has to give 100% of their wage, and we're talking $93,000 a year, so it's not a small wage. $93,000 a year and yeah, a compulsory tithing um, yeah. seems to be operating. Right. Yeah. Wow. seems to be unconstitutional to me too. Um, so the way it works if you're 100% is that um, you give the church 100% of your wage and then they pay. They basically give you a credit card where you pay for what you need. Hmm. And obviously, they want it to be less than ninety-three thousand a year. Um, so that seems problematic to me as well. Now, whether that will come out in the process, I don't know. But that's certainly information that I've been given. Right. So I think it's important to share that that this is not only looking unconstitutional; it's looking a little bit like fraud to me. But I'm no law-speaking guy, so don't ask me. Wow, that is interesting. <laughs> Yeah, back to the AFA. So I've been with them for for quite a number of years and and do volunteer work with them in terms of um, being admin on Facebook and whatnot. So um, yeah, look, I've I've really enjoyed my time with them. They're a good organisation. They did have some problems with a little bit of misogyny, especially on their Facebook page, but they've worked really hard to turn that around and uh, and be a really inclusive group. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so. Very proud of the work they've done. Right. Yep. And have you had anything to do with any of the other groups? Other well, are you a member of the Canberra Humanists then? Yes. Yes, I am. Yeah. Right. And what do they do, oh, so, for example? Oh, okay. Um, so humanism. Uh, um, so obviously, humanism was uh, quite a popular belief system. It's not based on evidence. So I have to. I would have to call my. Humanism, a belief system, um, belief in people uh, at the base level, but belief in uh, doing the right thing and, and uh, maximising well-being for all, including myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, look, they were huge, obviously, in the 60s, and they sort of faded out since then. Um, <laughs> most of the the um, most of the membership are now well and truly into their 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, and it's... Um, I don't know, Lyndon Story has been doing a lot of work in this area, but I feel like he's having trouble getting traction with younger people to get them involved. Um, 
uh, his concern is that if um, there isn't a second wave of humanism, that people will resort to other belief systems like tribalism, localism, nationalism, racism, extremism, in order to um, get the meaning and hope in their lives that they need. It, um, sorry, who, you, I missed the, his name. Who who has this fear? Who's who are you talking Lyndon, about? Lyndon Story. Lyndon Story, right? So, yeah. So he's the uh, president of the, the Council president. of Australian Humanists, right? Yep. That's right. So, so what do humanists do when they get together? Then, like, do they <laughs> do, do they actually have a, a proactive approach to any particular projects, or do they yeah. do anything other than just yeah. talk? I mean, oh, um, not that that's a bad thing, but just uh, if if talking's what they do, then that's is that their aim, or is there other more? Yeah, so a lot things? of it's a you're spot on, spot on the money there. That's what a lot of human societies have sort of been reduced to, just uh, groups of older people sitting around talking about things, especially talking about the glory days of humanism and how they got you know. Um, you know, stuff removed, or mentions of God removed off things and stuff. Um, that's not what Canberra humanists are about. Um, so Canberra humanists are uh, Canberra humanists are wanting to recognise where religion has done good things in the past and be the force or the organisation that comes in and carries on that good work. Um, you know, religion is on the way out, but the problems that face humans are not. So what's going to happen when, you know, there's no more people to do the sort of charity or goodwill work that ch- that religions have done in the past? Um, that's what I am personally hoping humanism can do and can bring about to be the place where people go where they may have gone to a priest or an imam or a cleric or a pastor in the past. Right. So sort of community goodwill um, sort of activities that, Churches might have done in the past, or still do, but without any of the theology, and just you know, yeah. uh, you know, approaching homeless shelters and soup, doing soup kitchens, and and yeah. that sort of role. Yeah, is that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and not keeping your sandwich hostage while we force you to pray, right? Um, <laughs> or yeah. take personal service. I'm um, doing good for good sake, basically. So yeah. that's uh, definitely what I think. Um, that's what I would like to see happen with humanism, but. You know, I'm not sure that we're gaining ground. I, I, I have no data on this, but um, the younger people that I know who are not religious or identify as agnostic or atheist don't seem to have the motivation to do that sort of work. Um, and you know, to be honest, um, I, I'm part of the generation that was told, you know, we'll go to hell if we played with our generals. So... You know, there's a lot of motivation that people of my generation may have, possibly out of a little bit of anger, and that's not necessarily a bad thing as long as it's directed positively. Um, That that maybe if you're not being being told that you're going to go for hell, you know, which is a ridiculous concept. You know, infinite punishment for a finite crime is a ridiculous uh, system of justice. But you know, if you weren't told that and didn't believe it, and then realised that it was all made up you know, maybe you're not going to have the motivating anger to get out there and do that sort of stuff. I don't know. That's my working hypothesis. I don't, don't have no data on that. Yeah, I don't know. Look, I just have the feeling that um, the whole sort of, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were uh, and the sort of 
the Mount Peleron Society, was it? And, and, and that whole, whole sort of economic thought of there is no such thing as society, there's just the individual and, you know, mm. you're doing it yourself and, and sort of ignore a caring or a place in society. I think it's running its course where people are looking at how that's played out in America and places like that and starting mm. to think that's not working and we need to start thinking beyond just the selfish individual and realising a role within a community that we together will achieve more and enjoy more. Absolutely, and I've heard the word society be used a hell of a lot more in this election campaign Yes, than it has been in previous years. And this is where I think Scott Morrison, I hope, is just going to fail because he just talks all the time about tax as being just... Such an evil thing. And I'd like to see Bill Shorten and others say, you know, taxes, how we get a society. Mm. We shouldn't be just bagging it. It's it's a, what glues us together and it's got us where we are today. So stop, you know, criticising it so much and sort of stand up for tax. Um, so I, I feel it's running that course, but it's, it's needing some sort of, oh, you know, recognisable moral framework that people can latch onto and be motivated by. And, of course, religions provide a, a tribalism and a sort of a martyrdom complex and us-against-them sort of thing that draws people in and together, whereas, you know, the sort of thing I'm talking about in humanism is, is, is not about tribalism. It's the opposite, and it's, it, it's, it's, it's not as motivating to bring people together when, um, when you're really trying to broaden outside of tribalism. So mm. that's the quandary or the difficulty I see in getting these people to act together. So anyway, we'll see how it all pans out. I don't know if you've got any thoughts along those lines or? Uh, look, like I, I agree and, you know, I'm not a, uh, a, I don't have a crystal ball and I'm not a futurologist, uh, so I wouldn't predict t- trends. But, I mean, if you look at, uh, simply look at the world around you where people uh tend to be increasingly, uh, this may be what I see, it's obviously just based on what I see, but people tend to be more isolated. Um, um, I lived in Japan for three years and, you know, that's very much a commentarian kind of society, you know, where people still think and act even in big cities as though they were living in villages. Right. Um, I, we don't really have that here. Like um, uh, when I worked there, and I used to go out the the um, my apartment block in the morning. There was always a same old lady doing some gardening or sweeping or cleaning up her yard, and she would say the same thing to me. She'd say, "Ohayo gozaimasu. Good morning, Otsukasama. Thanks for working hard for us all." And like that, that's not unusual there. There's still that sense of community that you don't know the person, but because they're a neighbour and because they're they're doing what they're doing, that they're part of your village i just don't get that here and i don't think it's but it's it's a cultural thing and it's a, it's a language thing but it's also you know we go and live in our houses drive in our cars go to work and come back and stay in our homes or apartments and there's not the forced um the, the forced courtesy that you get when you're living in a community and, and i say forced and it is forced there but we are a new social species, so I don't think it's bad for us to be forced to be more community-minded, uh, or at least 
forced in uh, non-coercive ways. Like it's just politeness there. It's politeness to, to do what she does and for me to respond in kind. It's rude not to, so it's forced in that way. But it's not, you know, there's no, there's nothing punitive that happen if you decide you, you don't want to say good morning. Mm. She'll probably just stop stop saying it because you're a rude person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. The the 12th man, my co-panelist, also spent a lot of time in Japan and we often remark on on Japanese culture and the and just cultural differences around the world and how culture does drive the way people think and um and our values yes which yeah. is mm. which is a point i often try to bring up in a conversation is um you know we 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 all have values we have values about how we think society should be structured how we should relate to each other and you know um there was there was a, a case in point that i was talking to scott about on the way over there was a um a, a bit of a ruckus uh, kicked up by the ALP about one LNP member who praised the hardworking ethic of the Chinese uh, immigration to Australia. Mm. You know, I mean, and, and as Scott mentioned, they don't all come from China. They come from various parts of China and Southeast Asia, you know, where there are Chinese the communities. Yeah. But invariably... You know, they migrate to a country like Australia and they see it as an opportunity and they work their guts out mm. and, you know, put their kids through the best schools to university, whatever, and they have this, as, like you mentioned with the Japanese, a very strong uh, work ethic. And, you know, that that reminds me, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a very common greeting in Japan to say, which basically means thanks for your efforts. You know, mm. and it's mm. this acknowledgement that we're we're part of a community, we're working for the common good, presumably, and mm. and you're appreciated. I, I can mm. remember walking uh, with some uh, with my wife and a friend, and we had bought some coffee, and we were walking up to this temple, and we were committing what would be a faux pas because we actually had food in our hands as we were, were coffee cups as we were walking the streets. You don't see people. Walking mm. around with food, they sit and they eat, and it's actually it's more civilized, isn't in, it? indeed. Um, so, uh, of course, there were no rubbish mm. bins, but the mm. streets are spotless. And mm. as we were walking in this tourist sort of street, we clearly walked past this lady's shop, and we weren't going to buy anything. But she she called out to us, and she beckoned us over because she recognised that our coffee cups were empty, and we had nowhere to put them. And she took mm. the empty coffee cups off us and put them in a bin that she had, you know, back in her shop. But and it was just a courtesy thing that she yeah. did on behalf of her community. And you would often see people out the front of their shops on the footpath brushing away non-existent dirt. Like they <laughs> took such yep. pride in in those sorts and of things. And flicking water around to dampen down the dust, you know. Yes. So, yeah. so you know, it's got some amazing sort of characteristics like that from the culture. But then I was talking to another another friend who worked there in the ski fields and he said, on the other hand, it's an incredibly uh, patriarchal society. And, yeah. and, and extremely and, conformist. So yes. if you, you know, that uh, you would know about this. They have a, a, an expression in Japanese that yep. basically translates as the nail that sticks up gets hammered down, you know. So does now. That's right. Yeah. So we've got to sort of take the 
pick it away at the you know accept the good parts of other cultures and learn from them yes. um mm. the sort of thing i often talk about as well is where uh in other cultures, you'll find that the uh, grandparents will live with the children and grandchildren in the house as part of a large household mm. rather than being shuffled mm. off to a retirement village. And, mm. and you know, that's yep. obviously um, a great way of doing it, but that's a cultural thing that you'll see in certain cultures. And I was actually at a coffee shop today with my mother who lives with us and the guy at the coffee shop uh, said to me as I was paying, he said, oh, I'm so jealous of you with your mother. I wish my mother was still alive. You know, does your mother live in a retirement village? And I said, no, she lives with us. And he said, have you got some Italian background or something? (laughs) (laughs) I said, no. He said, well, that's really unusual. Like you just don't see that in this community. So, um, yeah, it's interesting the way cultures drive us in different ways. And don't you think that that there's nothing at all wrong with being selective and saying, yeah, I like, I like certain aspects of, mm. of some particular culture and I think that's not a bad thing for us to adopt as a cultural norm. Yes. And, you well, know, this is one thing that gets me riled up a bit is when, uh, you know, the... Cultural appropriation? Well, no, not cul- right. the, the, the opposite, the, the idea that uh, we rigid, can't rigid judge, cultures. that we cannot judge uh, particular cultures... Because after all, that's racist, you know. I mean, yeah. well, that's like I'll put on my social sciences hat for, yes. for a sec, and I'll give you my answer as a sociologist. This so cultural relativism came about because of nineteenth-century, mostly British, uh, you know, anthropology. You know, go and see what the natives are doing, and presented in an amusing way, in which you know people can laugh at just how ridiculous their practices are. It was a reaction to that. You know, you don't judge a culture by our norms; you judge it by them. And it's a it's a tool. It's it's a tool for doing a society and doing people justice. Um, you cannot apply it in a moralistic way. You know, you don't apply it and say, because you're not from that culture, you can't judge it. No, I can judge it. I can judge the hell out of it. You know, I can say that Saudi Arabia is a horrible misogynist state and Japan is with lots of problems with misogyny and racism as well. And that's a problem. And I don't have to be, I don't have to be Saudi and I don't have to be Japanese to say that. And to say that I have to be is a misapplication of a tool which was meant to correct a bias. Mm. It's just outright wrong. You know, you, there are things called human rights, and if a country is not living up and enforcing those, so I, I don't believe human rights personally are inalienable. I think that they can be taken away, and the fact that they can be taken away is why we need to protect them. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, inalienable implies that they're always there. No, they're not always there. They're only there when they're actually operationalised, when they're actually enforced. Mm. And if they're not being enforced, I have every right to say yes, you are not enforcing those human rights or you're doing these bad things, why don't you stop it? Mm. Yeah. I, I think part of it is, uh, I mean, you could look at a primitive, you know, Papua New Guinea headhunter tribe and go, oh, that's a terrible thing to be, you know, a, a cannibal or chopping off a head. And, and the point of it was to say, well, from their point of view, when they've been raised that way uh, and that's all you know, then you have to bear that in mind when you're judging somebody. But obviously... In the overall scheme of things, not a good idea. But don't you know? It's it's a different matter if if you've got to have some empathy and and be able to place yourself in the mm. in the shoes mm. of another person. But that doesn't mean that then 
once you're cognizant of all these other things, you mm. shouldn't then take another view. Yeah. So. Yeah, and, and look, you know, uh, luckily um, we appear to be evolving culturally so that, you know, we used to think slavery was okay. You know, mm. like actually owning other human beings, we used to think that was okay. You know, I, I believe America fought a war over that, um, whether that was okay or not. <laughs> like we, we now know it's wrong. We know now it was always wrong. We now know that we were just, you know, certain people were just saying, trying to come up with apologies, you know, uh, apologetics for, for slavery. It was wrong and it was, was always wrong, you know. With respect, can I, can I just say that I think we, yep. we now know is the wrong way of putting it. We now agree that owning another human being is wrong. Knowing, yes. I, I think, was, I is, is a different yeah. realm of... of um, yes, yes. You know. I, I was, yeah, I was using it in no in terms of justified true belief. Mm. Um, I, I believe now that it's wrong. And knowledge is a subset of belief. It, you're right. It's, it's, I, I believe that it was wrong. And we now recognize that it was wrong. Exactly, you're, because our, right. our system no, of no, values right. now tells us... Yeah, that owning another human being is is not a not a nice thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. That, thanks for the the correction there. That's really important. Um, <laughs> Always language a pleasure. is important. <laughs> yeah, and and especially <laughs> when it comes to words like no, because people use them, and I was using them interchangeably with I'm certain that, mm-hmm. and religious people do that all the time exactly. when they say they know God exists. They're saying exactly. I feel certain that, and they actually don't know because they don't have justified true belief. You, you studied sociology and have a PhD, is that correct? I did. Right. And your topic was? Your special interest um, was? Yeah, so risk. Um, so I studied the way people understand and communicate risk, um, especially voluntary risk taking uh, within the area of uh, what does uh, justificatory rhetoric look like for in- people who are risk takers, so they're the inside group and what they look like for people who don't voluntarily take risks. And so they're the outside group. And the kinds of rhetoric that they use inside the group and outside the group are very different. And neither – well, only in the outside group does that actually map to the reality, mathematical reality of risk. So it was a sort of – the problem with with any study where you study human beings is – Unlike things like in science, there's no objectivity to be had. We know from the Hawthorne studies, which were done in the 20s and 30s in the US, that humans will actually change their behavior when they know that they're being studied. Mm. They'll try to do what the research they think the researcher wants or say what they think the researcher wants. Yeah. So the, the it's other, using multiple methods yeah. to triangulate a, a kind of answer. The, the other problem with a lot of these studies is that the people being studied are often white uh, Anglo-Saxons in in universities of the Western <laughs> exactly. world. And we've already discussed how the attitudes that they might have could be quite different to, say, an Asian or Japanese group. And yeah, so yeah. if you are – a lot of these studies done in American universities will yeah. have a bias that um, – that they could have had a quite different result had they been done in in Asian universities, and of course most of them yeah. done in, in Western universities. So that's the other. Yeah, problem. that was a bit of a, bit of a shock for um, economists when they found out they couldn't replicate their economic games in in Asian countries. Yes, <laughs> like um, the, you know, you would know the classic, you know, either the game of you know 
either we get equal amounts or, or of money in a game or we get none is the typical US results. But in Asia, they're a lot more fatalistic. So like, you got more money, I got some money, we all win. What's ah, the problem? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So this is the one where one person has got, say, um, $10 and yep. they, can, they have to share it with the other person and they yep. decide how they're going to split it. And the other person can either accept or reject the offer. And if they reject, yep. then they both don't get anything. So that's right. Um, so typically, if somebody did a split where the person decided, I'm going to do uh, 95 5, so I keep 95% and you only get 5%, uh, that would be rejected by the other person um, yeah. as being unfair. If it was 50 50, the other person would normally accept it. And it seemed to level out at around 70-30 that people would accept 30%. Um, mm. But if you gave them any less than that, then they would object and say, well, I cancel the whole deal and none of us get anything out of spite yeah. because of the unfairness. And you're saying that yeah. in Asian countries they'd actually accept less than that because of a fatalistic view of, of Yeah, right. well, also a... A different view in terms of um, not being as uh, strongly in favour of uh, equality of outcome or you know distributive justice. So right. they, they look at it and say, "Well, we both got something that's better than nothing." Right. Yeah. Mm, good yep. point. Yeah. I saw another study that talked about um, where they you had to look at these objects and decide which one you were going to give to somebody as a present, and the Westerners would choose the one that was unusually coloured and stood out, whereas the Asians would choose the one that was um, homogenous and more like the others as the gift that they mm. would give. And it was a completely different mindset as to mm. which one they chose. So there's all sorts of yeah. inherent differences that we have. Oh, absolutely. And um, that's just at the cultural level, you know, mm. we're finding now, and that's the fascinating thing about science, you actually learn something new every day if you pay attention, whereas dogma never changes. Mm. Um, you know, we're now <laughs> learning that <laughs> certain um, people in, up in different parts of Africa actually see uh, see coloured very differently from people from uh, Europe or European background. Uh, they can mm. actually tell the difference between different hues of colour much more at a much more minute level than than um, people of a European descent can. So, yeah, there mm. we go. Mm. Learn something new today. Mm. Right. Now, what we're going to do, Justin, is uh, – We've got another sort of, oh, 15 minutes we'll probably do, I think. <laughs> we get into trouble if we go too long. My wife complains and says, that, well, that podcast was too long. It's got to be, you know, no longer than an hour. So, um, But we normally like to talk a bit about politics and stuff. And, uh, um, and of course, on the election coming up, we will do that. I, uh, so I was on Facebook and I saw this uh, cheat sheet provided by this guy. I'll have a link to it. But basically he was going through some of the minor parties when you're looking at your Senate ballot ballot paper. Mm. And Justin, are you aware of a lot of the minor parties? You sound like a guy who is across sort of um, political yeah. issues. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I won't stay with you if that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Um, just because I, I, this is a matter of self-awareness, <laughs> I uh, fit far, far to the more radical left than the majority of people. So I, my extreme, my views may be a little extreme. I, I put that down to um, recognising the fact that I, that I have one life and I probably won't have a second chance at it, so I want 
justice and equality and all that shiny new lovely stuff for okay. all. So just but, briefly, um, briefly but, what would be your would, extreme yeah. view? You, what's what's your most extreme view that we would that you think we would consider extreme? Uh well, okay, so. Um, the radical dis- redistribution of wealth mm-hmm. via, um, uh, uh, you know, a universal basic income. Yeah. That would be one of the things that I would say might be a little bit extreme for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, We're okay you know, with that. Uh, We're okay with that. <laughs> okay, yeah. cool. What no about worries. a wealth tax? Yes, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, look, minor parties are interesting. I, I had a conversation just this week with uh, a Greens candidate standing for the Senate um, it was a very short conversation. Mm. Um, <laughs> I was waiting for my bus. I ended up missing that bus because of the conversation, but I think it was worthwhile. I may have planted a seed. Um, I said to her, she said, oh, I'm this, this is my name. I didn't quite catch it because she was on my left side and I'm deaf on that side. Um, so I turned to face her and she said uh, she's, she said her name, which I missed, and then she said, I'm the, the Greens candidate for the Senate in the ACT. And I said, oh, cool. What's uh, your party's policy on things nuclear? And she said, we're against all things nuclear. And I said, my dad has late-stage cancer and is undertaking radiotherapy. Are you going to deny him his treatment? Because <laughs> <laughs> she did say all, that, yes. and that includes nuclear medicine. <laughs> And she said, oh, no, 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 we're for nuclear medicine. Okay, thanks for that. I've got to get the bus. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. Oh, dear. All right, we'll we'll let you go then, Justin. And if you have any developments in your case, please let us know or anything else of interest with your just general humanist chaplaincy work, please let us know and keep in touch. Lovely. Thank you, you, Trevor, and everyone else. Thanks Thanks very much, Justin. See you, Justin. Bye. Bye Bye now. Okay. Justin, interesting guy. That was very interesting. Absolutely, yeah. 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 Very interesting. Hmm. That's good, solid community work, going mm. into a hospital and just counselling people who don't have anybody else there or who yeah, do but know. need another voice. And mm. what I found really interesting was he was prepared to pray with them, mm. you know, even though he didn't realise, even though he said that the words weren't going anywhere. It, mm. said it was for them, not him. So, yeah. Mm. When editing this, it struck me that I should have included our own podcast prayer, so here it is. Please, let us pray. Iron Fist, who art in Brisbane, Trevor be thy name, with Velvet Glove and Twelfth Man, podcast be thy game. Give us this day our weekly podcast to expose those who have trespassed against us, Lead us not into superstition, but deliver us from bullshit. For thine is the podcast, for the politics and the ethics, for the beer and the banter. Amen. Twelfth man, you might sign up as a military chaplain. I dare say I'm probably too old for military service uh, according to their um, requirements. But, right. yeah, I'd, I'd probably go for that, you know, if, mm. if, if I met their... Um, their you know, their parameters. Would you consider being a hospital chaplain? Possibly. Hmm. Although, you know, I, I probably find it a bit too depressing. Right. You know? Yep. 
yeah. to be honest. And and there's definitely a place for people who do that work, obviously. And it's and look, I have the greatest admiration for Justin because mm-hmm. he, he seems like a very uh, generous sort of person in terms of he's willing to give of himself mm. for other people's benefits. So, mm. you know, more power to his arm, I say. But um, mm. no, I'm not sure I'd, I'd fit into that role too well. Yep. Right. Let's just quickly finish off with a bit of just general politics with the election coming up. Scott, when you looked at your Senate ballot paper when you yeah. were voting, there would have been a whole bunch of parties on there. It must have been a metre long, the ballot sheet, wasn't it? Yeah, it was probably close to that. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I just – I chose, you know – Did you number, real, number every square? Yeah, no, I didn't have – I didn't do that. I, I – Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a very peculiar person, so I vote. My first preference always goes to some loser that's not going to get 5% of the primary vote because I object to giving money to political parties from the taxpayer. However. (laughs) They'll get it anyway, Scott. You know that. Uh, Because it's only the primary vote that gets the primary vote. Oh, is it really? They only get the money back from AEC for the primary vote. So they get the preference vote, vote, but they don't get the money for the vote. Oh, That's good, Scott. So that's what I do. Very clever. Thank you. But, however, when I looked at my primary, when I looked at my um, House of Representatives ballot paper, there were a whole group of nutters on there that could get above 5%. You had One Nation, you had um, Clive Palmer, you had um, Fraser Anning. And I was down to the Greens, the ALP and the Labor Party and, I thought, and the Liberal Party. I thought to myself, Jesus Christ, I don't want any of them to get my first preference. So <laughs> I, had to, I had to eventually vote for the Labor Party woman anyway. Right. The Senate was a different story. That was easy enough. So I could fill out the first five with ones that were never going to win anything and then just put my right. six, six votes. Did you see Frank on the, on the ballot paper? I did see Frank right. and he got my number one preference. There you go, Frank. Yes. You got a vote. So uh, a guy we knew from the secular party I days. Did, I Frank didn't know Frank is, was, was uh, a candidate. He's running in the hemp party. Yeah. Oh, of course, yes. He's long had an interest in that help, area. Yeah. Help, yeah, I saw something on Facebook today. Help in mar- marijuana prohibition hemp party. Mm. Yeah. So Well done, Frank. Mm. He's the second candidate in that group, but I just gave the uh, party my first yeah. preference. Mm. Look, be careful, dear listener, when you're looking at the minor parties. Some of them have got very misleading names. Absolutely. They have some very wacko ones, like the Liberal Democrats. You don't want to confuse them with the Liberal Party. Yeah. Um, looking at this little cheat sheet that I'll have a um, link to, the Liberal Democrats is described as guns and drugs, anarcho-capitalists, <laughs> extremely eager to jump in bed with fascists. It's a little harsh. Yeah. I mean, not that I'm a supporter of them, but... That's here's here's some harsh. of the ones I object to. These ones with the tricky names. So Health Australia Party, you would think would be some sort of pro public health group. One would have thought so, yeah. but they're actually anti-vaxxers mm. and big pharma conspiracy theorists. So yeah, so, nuts. Yeah, so mm. think twice about that. Uh, the Great Australian Party is described as fascists. Um, <laughs> Yellow Vest Australia, single-issue, card-carrying Islamophobes. <laughs> See how this is described. Now, Sustainable Australia, what would you think if you're looking on the ballot paper and you're thinking, Sustainable Australia, would be some sort of a, a green group of some sort? One would have thought they were probably sustainable population, that type of thing. Well, you would, Scott, because you were on the ball. So right. sustainability <laughs> sounds like a reasonable um, but thing, but in fact they're talking about sustainable population. So... 
And this guy so describes it. Must it, be racist. This guy describes it as Malthusian paranoia as a cover for racism. <laughs> he describes it. It's written by a social justice warrior. So, um, who else? Um, Animal Justice Party are probably very um, militant in that regard. And um, shooters, fishers, and farmers, rednecks. Yeah, <laughs> but it was mainly the ones that had the the names that sounded okay. Who really like the Health Party, for example, are really not about what you might think they're about. So mm. uh, be careful if you're going to tick the box for some obscure minor parties. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Look, I, I find this, um, this guy's um, guy or gal's views pretty obvious, mm. uh, supporter of the Greens, because mm. the Greens entry have had some internal tension, Who you know, which party doesn't have some internal tension, but... Uh, what does it say? Their policies, nothing compared to the Libs, but their policies remain solid. Really? And, you know, this person labels a whole bunch of other parties as racists and, and yeah. thereby dismisses any any other, you know, platform they might have mm. and doesn't mention the way the Greens are always accusing everybody else, including white Australians, of being racists. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very inconsistent assessment. It, it is. So his comment on the secular party is progressive pro-science, anti-religious education, probably still mean well, but they're not afraid to use the Sharia law dog whistle nowadays. Yeah. So, yeah. Typical, so, yeah. isn't it? But anyway, he's, he's got a funny turn of phrase on some of these ones for that reason alone. So. And it's, it's only good for a joke, really. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, but it does highlight the fact that some of these groups like Health Australia and Sustainable Australia are meaning things that you might not think they That's mean true. when you're looking yeah. at it yeah, at first blush. Gentlemen, any other thoughts on the week that was? I, I, I didn't watch the debate. I just couldn't stand looking at a smirking Scott Morrison for any length of time. None of us did. None of us did. I've there got you it, go. I've got it recorded. I've still got to watch it. but I couldn't stomach Morrison and uh, Short. Short. I mean, I've already voted for him. (laughs) Yeah. So there you go. That's interesting, isn't it? Like Mm. we're obviously interested in in these things, but Mm. we just couldn't stomach watching it and thought we'd get nothing out of it. I'd I'd rather listen to or read the the analyses that we get from the political journalists. Absolutely. Mm. It's more instructive to me. When I was driving over to your place tonight, I was listening to the party room, and that was very good. They were saying they hit the nail right on the head there. They said Shorten was full of all the ideas, but Morrison had the pizzazz. Mm. So, you know, and there is actually some school of thought out there. It's a brave school of thought that Morrison might actually beat him. I'm still not convinced of that. He uh, seems to be on the front foot compared to Shorten, doesn't he? Shorten looks quite defensive. Yeah. Which, you know, Shorten's got all the ideas and all that sort of thing, which makes a hell of a lot of sense. You know, I was saying to you earlier tonight, Shorten is actually saying all the right things, except when he goes into the um, specifics of his policy, that's when he fucks it up, pardon the language. But, you know, <laughs> mm. if he stayed away from the specific specifics, he would probably mm. do much better. Mm. Right. Well, uh, I got a message from Deep Throat. Yeah. Apparently there's another student demonstration coming up where kids are going on strike on a Friday. Oh, okay. Mm. So... Deep Throat is going to be joining the youngsters. All power to them, he says. Uh, he says he disagrees with the 12th band. Saving the planet takes precedence over schooling. So he'll be there. Um, 
So what's the next thing that our school children will save us from? <laughs> Ourselves. Mm. Right. Well, gentlemen. I would love to see what the turnout would be if they started the protest at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon rather than at uh, class time. Yeah. I agree. Hey, beer sponsors? Beer sponsors, yes. Uh, thank you very much to our latest beer sponsor, Zach, for the tasty, hop thief. It? it is yeah. very going down very well, actually. Thank you, Zach. Yes. Yeah, so Thanks, Zach. Beer sponsors, thank you to Woz, Wano, Landon, Bronwyn, Dave, Adam, Landon, Caitlin, and Zach. Mm. And thank you to the patrons, Sean, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wano, Ayame, uh, the beneficiary, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Watley, Jimmy Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt, Robbie, Rod Palais, Maddockman, Dominic, Liam, Dave, The Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Car Battery, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday, Aiden, Wheat Watcher, Nico, Andy and Murray and the non-patrons uh, who contribute outside of that, Dean, Ken, Was, uh, David, Mark and Mr. Anderson. <laughs> um, I've also just received a text message from Landon. He said, happy 200th. Oh, thank you, So Landon. thank you very much, Landon. Yeah. yeah. So um, maybe we'll do a bigger celebration when we get to four years, which must be just around the corner. We'll look it up and see. Well, I'll look, I'll look it up now. It can't, it can't be that hard to quickly look up. It can't be that far So, Paul, how are you feeling about voting this time? Well, as we discussed on the way over, I will, you know, hold that pencil. I, 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 it'll be the pencil will be lucky to survive my grip because <laughs> I'll be so full of tension and misgivings about what I'm about to do. But I, I'll probably vote for that, you know, spineless, unprincipled opportunist. <laughs> called Mr. Shorten. Um, one of my friends f- refers to him as Shorten Ideas. But, look, I just think he's Shorten Principal. You know, he, he's, a, he's a classic weather vane politician. But, you know, Scott, Scott Morrison is just clearly uh, not my choice no, at, at all. And beyond the pale. And I yeah. just wish we had some other options. Mm. Right, our first episode was on the 4th of July, 2015, Scott, so we'll do something a bit more special then. Next week, dear listener, I am going to be in Sydney, but before that, I'm going to record a podcast with Harris Sultan of the Secular Party, who is an Mm ex-Muslim atheist Mm -hmm. and has an interesting life story, Um, born in Lahore, Lahore, Pakistan, and... So that'll be next week and see what he's got to say and uh, we'll be back together as a group in two weeks' time. No worries. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in. We'll talk to you then. Thanks very much. Bye now. Bye, everyone. I, Raju Singh, give thanks for this wonderful townhouse in Armadale. Ooh, let me see who my neighbour in number 69 is. Mr Barnaby Joyce. I have heard of this good Christian man this man of family values. Let me listen and see if the great man is at home. Oh, Mr. Joyce, good to see that your Christian and family values are still strong like bull. Oh, Mr. Joyce, I thought you had renounced 
your New Zealand citizenship. Yes, Mr. Joyce. Grab the pussy. Grab the pussy. Oh, a cop in bed with you, Mr. Joyce? Oh, I guess Matthew 7-1. I should not judge. Not you too, Ganesh. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like, grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast so there's different levels ranging from a dollar fifty australian to i think ten dollars and various ones in between it's really what do you think it's worth is it worth a cup of coffee uh is it worth more than that less than that whatever you get out of it because not everybody gets the same maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks. <laughs>